quack quack everybody this is a big one this is the this is, seems like the biggest game of the year so far i mean there's that oregon georgia game but i don't know in the back of my head i definitely knew where that was going but this you know the the team has some, we're on our web feet you know we've we, we're we're more stable. Bo Nix, he's having fun. He's out there. Everything else you want to say about him. Uh, meanwhile, UCLA also looking really good. It seems like Chip Kelly's actually got that thing humming right before they abandoned the Pac-12. Uh, DTR in his 100th year there as quarterback is is definitely looking a lot more comfortable and has had a great season. He's got that whole offense on his back, but he's also got some great talent around him. And could not be more excited for this game. Game day coming to Eugene, Oregon. So in order to talk about that, we got Hithliday from Addicted to Quack, the wonderful Oregon Duck SB Nation site. Hithliday, are you excited for this game? Yeah, you bet. Who's not excited not for college football? Exactly. How could you not be? We got Lee Corso in the house. And, I mean, we had to get some UCLA representation here. And so we got someone who we talked to in the offseason who really knows his stuff. I'm talking Michael Hanna of the B-Team podcast. That is the B-Team podcast. You can find that on Twitter, at UCLA B-Team. They just came out with an episode. Uh, and you can find him at Michael M. Hanna, H-A-N-N-A. Michael, I'm so excited for this. Are you excited about this Bruin team so far? They've looked good, Adam. They seriously have. It's been it's been crazy. I mean, first of all, it's a pleasure to be back with y'all. I mean, we had such a great conversation during the summer that I mean, I figured if this game was going to be anything remotely decent, that we would do something like this. So when I got the invite, <laughs> I was excited. But beyond that, yeah, the um, no, the Bruins they look good. The offense is just supercharged, and the defense is an actual thing that exists rather than a complete sieve, which is, you know, nice. So um, I'm expecting points in this game, but either way, um, it, it's it's exciting to see the Bruins play this well. Um, it's not a be all end all this weekend for the Bruins as far as what they want as what as far as what could reasonably be expected from this season. I mean, anyone who came in thinking that they were going to go undefeated throughout the season, I think it's unreasonable if they win this game, though, it's on the table, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but either way, I mean, they have everything to play for. They have uh, conference title hopes. They have Rose Bowl hopes. Um, they have the thing that I will never actually allow myself to entertain until I see it actually happen, <laughs> which is playoff hopes, you know. So, um, yeah, there's a lot at stake here for the Bruins. I know that the Ducks are surging since the Georgia game. Um, and, and quite honestly, I mean, first game under Dan Lanning, um, there's a lot going on there. Um, it, it, it's essentially a road game. Like, I mean you want to call that a neutral site game. That's a joke to me, but um, no, no, it's essentially a road game against the defending national champions. I mean, there's a lot working against Oregon there. And since then they've looked great. That's right. And uh, so Hithliday, you helped us dissect this roster in the off season. Uh, please help us walk through it right now. Undefeated season right now, PAC 12 titles on the line. Well, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation in the summer um, when I was writing up my my UCLA preview, and I, I was I re-listened to it and went back and read that article um, before we hopped on. And like Michael, we really nailed it. Like we we pretty much called exactly how this you know you know the how the personnel was going to play out, um, you know, uh, and how you know the, sort of the offense was going to get structured. The thing that's been uh, 
a big surprise to me, and I'm wondering if it is to you, is that the thing that I'd been talking about with Chip Kelly for four years at UCLA was the playbook was just insanely, you know, enormous. It was like half again as big as anybody else's playbook. It would change every week. And he had a bunch of like every week he'd introduce like crazy new formations that, you know, he'd never put on film before. And I put on the UCLA tape and it's like, they're running 75% of their snaps out of, you know, a pretty basic spread 11 personnel, you know, with just like a, a smattering of, you know, a couple under center snaps, a couple 12 personnel, a couple empties. Um, and, you know, I really haven't seen, you know, much in the way of like, you know, formational variation. They had like a, a little like pistol 20 look that they tried out against Washington. It didn't really work. And they didn't run it against Utah. Like is, I, I don't know, that like blew me away. What are you feeling about it? It's it's interesting because we did talk about that during the offseason. I re recall it very distinctly, talking about the size of his playbook or what it felt like it was at Oregon versus what he's been trying to do at UCLA with more bespoke week-to-week -week game plans. Um, actually, one of the things that's been pretty notable, I don't think we've discussed it on our podcast, but I know that I've talked about it in like group chats and amongst friends, that, um, yeah, it seems to be a lot more 11 personnel. He seems to not be trying to reinvent the wheel. As, I mean, there were times a couple of years ago where he was getting four and trying to get five tight ends out there just I, I, honestly i think just to um to to troll people <laughs> to an extent but um <laughs> no it's been a lot more standard it's been a lot more standard 11 um they they had uh they had a little special thing they did against utah that i think usc actually aped a little bit um where they had uh they had trips on one side they had one receiver on the other and they would run kaz allen across the formation yeah. throw back across the formation and they did that they beat utah with that play probably i think it was four or five times usc scored a touchdown on it they ran the jordan addison they, they literally ripped it off from ucla but beyond that it, it that uh, i don't know if that was 10 or 11 but either way they haven't gone crazy with the tight ends the way that they've got tried to get exotic with that it's not a bunch of weird plays it's mesh and y cross and all the stuff that chip loves with a little bit of inside zone a little bit of duo all the kind of stuff the stuff that i act like i know what i'm talking about i learned it all from chris osgood for, who's one of my good friends and a ucla analyst uh uh, I'll, I'll plug yeah, him right now. Chris I, and I, I talk oh, DM on Twitter all the time. The, oh, oh, the, you know him then. Okay. Well, the film study community is not large. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Chris, at, uh, he's at, at OzgoodCK. If you want to follow basically what Hitler Day does for you guys, Chris does for UCLA. If you want to get that perspective on UCLA and just the nicest guy in the world, talk, Chris Osgood. So anywho, um, yeah, all this stuff that I act like I, I, I can throw out the words. He knows what it is, but he's kind of told me that yeah, it, it, we he actually is the one who pointed out to me that during the uh, non-conference schedule, the playbook that Chip was holding on to, literally the actual um, pieces of paper themselves, the binded pieces of paper or bound, I suppose would be the right way to say it, was, it was about a quarter as big as it was before. And it stayed that way the entire season. And he's just, I, he's honestly, Chris has been tracking it the entire season. How big is the book in front of him in his hands this week? So it, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, and I feel like this is one of the few places that would notice that. But it is the truth that he has, it, it seems to be simplified, more streamlined. And what they're doing is the stuff, well, it's, it's that combined with the fact that DTR has taken his accuracy to another level and his poise in the pocket to another level. It's really combined for a very, very exciting offense. They know what they're doing. They're clicking on all cylinders. They're going, they're doing a classic chip thing in terms of there have been games where they've run the same play two, three times in a row. We're going to challenge you to do it. We're going to challenge you to stop it because we're going to keep doing it. Like a lot of it, it's not the blur, but it, there are some classic chip tenants that seem to have come back this year that were kind of stowed away before. 
Uh, yeah, everything you mentioned, you know, I you you ran through the list of questions that I wanted to ask you. So, oh, short po- short podcast. Yeah. I'll talk to you guys yeah, later. I know <laughs> you checked a bunch of boxes. Yeah. Um, the one unchecked that I guess I'll get out of the way before we get to the real juicy stuff is that I kind of feel like I only have four good games worth of data on UCLA because, um. You know, for the first time ever, UCLA played an FCS team, uh, um, Alabama State, uh, which is just not, I mean, it's not one of the good FCS teams. It's its real bad. Um, uh-huh. And then, you know, the Bowling Green game, I just didn't, I haven't charted it. Like, it looks like it was a terrible game and Bowling Green looks like a terrible team. There's like 20 in like, in you know, in Jeff Segarin's ratings, which which does all of Division One. So like, you know fbs and fcs combined in the same you know sorting algorithm uh he's got bowling green behind 20 fcs teams like this you know it just looks like a really bad team and like i don't want to watch this game did i miss something or what do you think you missed the special teams apocalypse they got it out of the way in week one which was nice Mm -hmm. um you missed ucla's offensive line really needing to gel in week one because a lot of not a lot um the interior line returned as we talked about over the offseason but the two tackles they were just not in it that day against a really bad defensive line but because of that they against a team like bowling green they had to basically abandon what their game plan was and they went to a very short drop offense get the ball out of dtr's hands quickly and it was good enough to win that day but um a comment that i made to um a friend of mine was that if we played literally anybody other than bowling green and fbs that day we would have lost so yeah. they had classic first game get it out of the way i th- i was hoping it wasn't a sign to things to come the it, it looked like it, it i guess i'll make this general comment and it's something that i mentioned on our podcast uh that uh came that came out yesterday tuesday uh the the 18th this season i mean in general chip has tended to treat non the non-conference schedule at ucla as if it's an NFL preseason. But this season, it especially seemed so because if you look at the film from South Alabama versus Colorado, and I know that South Alabama is significantly better than Colorado this season, but the team is significantly more locked in against Colorado than they were against South Alabama. And you can grade Colorado on a curve at that time and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it really does feel like the moment they set foot on the field in Boulder, they're like, okay, we kind of have to be serious now. The, South Alabama handed them a gift because they did not show up for that game mentally. But um, but yeah, once the conference season started, it really seems like, okay, boys, we got to get it together now. And the luxury of this season that they were able to do that because Michigan backed out of that part of the, the, the second game of the season, uh, their visit to the Rose Bowl. So we scheduled Alabama State instead, and it was it was a pure preseason essentially. Yeah, it was. Well, I guess the point of this question is that like my data set for charting, you know, for all oh, that game was useless. That game was yeah, useless. I, I'm just using the last four games, you know, South Alabama, Colorado, um, Washington and Utah, you know, and frankly, South Alabama was a better opponent than Colorado was. Yes. Um, and uh, um you know, I kind of feel like, yeah, you know, just as you say, and like Colorado is like difficult to grade. And, um, but like, I kind of feel like I wasn't really watching, you know, real UCLA until, you know, that game against Washington on, on, you know, the midweek game. Um, I, I don't know, like, is this, it, it, do, I guess I'll, I'll put it this way. Like, do you endorse that approach? Like, you know, that, that, that excluding the Bowling Green game, you know, makes my data set better, not worse. I think it's more accurate because that Bowling Green game, it might as well have been, it might as well have been like the uh, Rams Chargers game in 
preseason week one of the NFL. Like there was very, very limited value in it. Once they really got a little bit serious in terms of the way that they wanted to attack Bowling Green, they went on like a 34-3 run. That game was just over. And then at that point in the second half, rather than run up the score, Chip put in a bunch of backups for game experience. There was an article on Bruin Report online talking about all the scholarship guys who hadn't been in games previously, who finally got a taste of game time and what it meant to them and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it was almost ceremonial. Yeah. So um, I don't think you're missing anything. You mentioned that uh, the the offensive line, you know, in, you know, struggled a little bit. I know that we talked in the offseason about how they lost their offensive tackles. Um, they brought in two, you know, both of them uh, are brand new, right? Raekwon uh, O'Neal, the transfer from uh, from the East Coast, and uh, and a guy named DiGiorgio, who I don't think I'd ever heard of before. I think he's a redshirt freshman. Um, how would you assess their play? So... Raekwon McNeil, or not McNeil, gosh, I, I did the same thing on Monday, my goodness. Um, uh, Raekwon O'Neal, I want to say McNeil always, because Eric McNeil is the guy who made the pick against USC to keep them out of the national championship game in 2006, a, a mm. guy I'll always revere, revere but regardless, Raekwon O'Neal, um, which is also a name I should be familiar with in LA, but um, either way, uh, Raekwon O'Neal, more than anybody on the UCLA roster seemed to need that auto conference to act as almost like a preseason in, the sen- in a sense, because week on week on week, he has gotten significantly better to the point where against Utah, that was his best game by far. Washington was his best game before that. Colorado was his best game before that. He has had significant improvements week on week as he has figured out his place on this line and gelled with his line mates. Uh, Did Giorgio got a little bit of experience last year. Uh, he was a three-star tackle from Northern California, if I remember correctly. But um, it, uh, Did Giorgio had cameos last season in garbage time where he was halfway decent to the point where you could say oh in a couple of years that'll be a player i thought he was be getting i thought he was going to be getting a little bit of a baptism by fire this season it was going to be a little bit too soon since that really yeah since the south alabama game uh, same thing it, it, he has gotten significantly better week on week on week but like the line in general in the conference season has been so far ahead of where it was in the non-conference as to be unrecognizable so, um, yeah, they have both been uh, there. There's one. Oh, there's two key factors for UCLA's kind of line renaissance. And I mean, it just including those guys, of course, the improvement of O'Neill and DiGiorgio to kind of bring them into the picture. But then also, um, you know, knock on whatever, at least going into this week their depth hasn't been tested quite yet because they haven't had, I feel like I'm just jinxing that. Oh honest. yeah, no but, man, uh, let's not. Yeah, like, but you, I, you know where I'm going with it. Yeah, Point I know. Is, like they, they like, have yeah. no depth at all. Like if something yeah. happens to one of the tackles, it's, it's kind of game over for UCLA. Yep. Whereas they have a, you know, a fourth man among the guards, right? Like we've seen Mafia and Clemens and Gaines left to right, but then also we saw seen a little bit of Marazzo, you know, snapping yeah. the ball a little bit this year. And like, you know, that if something happens to one of the, the guards that, that, you know, they'll be able to deal with it fine. But like, oh man, I, yeah. I, I hate to think anything happened to these tackles, either one of them. Agreed. And that's why like first play of the game, I already know I just did this, but regardless, I have to apologize to every UCLA fan personally mm-hmm. right now, but regardless, and, and congratulations, every Oregon fan as a, you know, <laughs> subsequently, but uh, yeah. And their swing tackle. Not how Oregon I, fans want to win. I assure you. No, I, I know nobody wants to see that, of course, but uh, the, the swing tackle that's uh, who had no experience either. The guy, but the guy who was uh, slated to uh, be behind uh, both O'Neill and DiGiorgio in the event of either of them needing to be spelled. Tyler Manoa has already transferred out of the program. Yeah, that's what I was about to so, ask you next. Like yeah. that's that's done and gone. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so mm. essentially, the the issue that arose, as far as I understand it, is that uh, Manoa played defensive line his entire mm-hmm. career at UCLA before this offseason. Uh, they asked him to switch because there was more of an opportunity for him to play on the offensive line at tackle specifically. Um, and defensive line had a little bit more going on. But after I think it was after the South Alabama game or going into the South Alabama game that around that time, they had a serious depth issue where uh, Martin Andrews, uh, Gary Smith, and Jay Toia, the three top tackles on their defensive tackle chart, were all uh, injured. Mm-hmm. And so Manoa apparently approached the coaches asking to switch back for, for the next couple of weeks until those guys got healthy. They told him, no, we need you more here. And he they basically said they won't let me help the team, and he left. Hmm. So, uh, anyway. yeah, yeah they, they, there's there's nothing behind uh, O'Neal and DiGiorgio. So their health is literally – their health along with DTR and Charbonnet, those are like the four guys that UCLA just, you know, it's just untouchables has to be. Yeah, I just to, I don't know, to, to peel back the curtain a little bit, like the, the reason why I've sort of been skeptical of the UCLA renaissance is simply because, well, situations like that is sort of a synecdoche of the entire team where it's like, this is a really cobbled together with duct type and chicken wire kind of team where it's like, you know, grab 30 different transfers, you know, to reconstruct the defense, the lines are super thin. And, you know, a lot of it is, uh, is, you know, DTR making magic. Um, you know, Charbonnet, you know, the blocking's not great in front of him. Like, I'm not as high on this line as it sounds like you are, uh, you know, but Charbonnet makes stuff happen, you know, or like Kelly will figure out, they'll, Chip Kelly, I mean, will will figure out, you know, that there's some defensive structural vulnerability, like Washington had an even worse defensive tackle situation than apparently UCLA did. And, and, you know, in the third and fourth quarter, he just runs right up the middle a bunch of times against their exhausted, um, you know, they're, they're exhausted DTs, you know, or Utah, he figures out that they have no idea how to defend, you know, the zone read option. And, you know, and I put out tweets of both of these where I put like five clips, you know, five plays in a row where it's like, he's just running the same play because you idiots, you know, on the defense haven't figured out how to defend it. And it's like, I kind of, uh, you know, my attitude towards UCLA is that like, uh, like I appreciate like everything that that the way that this has been put together to make it look like a really strong team. I don't think the f- fundamentals are there. Do you think I'm wrong about that? Do you think the fundamentals are actually there and I'm misjudging it? Uh, no, I, uh, I actually a lot of what you just said matches up with a lot of what I think about this team in terms of. Uh, well, there are a couple things. First of all, um, the for example, in the Utah game. When Stefan Blaylock got ejected for targeting, every yeah. group chat I was in basically said, okay, we're playing a walk-on now. And you could say that about so many positions on the depth chart where it's basically they're lacking for depth. Like You can see that what could be considered an unofficial starting 22 to the extent that you could ever really have that in football given the different types of formations sure. and strategies you have. But that top tier of players on the depth chart, beyond them, there really is not that much there. So health is paramount for this team. Um, and second of all, I, UCLA has had um, – they've benefited from a couple of things. The first thing that they really benefited from was the the luxury of a – really, I mean, what is essentially a pre I, I know I said it already, but yeah. the, the luxury of a preseason this year um, and South Alabama handing them a gift in a game where they outplayed UCLA. So um, for those who didn't watch that game and you had no reason to because um, it's literally it's South Alabama at UCLA in week three um, and there's actual real college football going on at that time. Uh, South Alabama dominated UCLA. UCLA stayed in it because they just had a more explosive offense. South Alabama's driving down the field in the fourth quarter. 
um, with chance to go up um, four points and force UCLA to score a Oh no! Sorry to uh, to take the game to nine points. Excuse me if they attempt a field goal. Um, yeah. South Alabama's. Uh, I don't coach, understand why they yeah. didn't just run. Like they, w- it's not like it's you see them one, stopping yeah. them. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. No, yeah. I mean it, it was they it was a field decision, goal. But I mean, all that, yeah. But I mean, regardless of the outcome of the game, and like it was yeah. a happy one for UCLA, it's still like all that data goes down on the chart is like you know UCLA, you know like boy this defense is poor so we'll talk yep. about the defense in a minute but like you know yeah it does sort of feel like this team you know i do wonder about that like how much like maybe i should even just be you know maybe i should just isolate just the utah game you know yep. <laughs> like because that's the most recent game they played you know mm-hmm. but like the you, you know we we've 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 talked about like uh chip kelly's you know playbook and how it's changed and how he like you know isolates a certain play that the defense is just not stopping very well like um the the other thing that's remarkable and you already mentioned it is like you know dtr is a fifth year starting quarterback you know like and you know all the stuff from his early career that made you roll your eyes at the guy you know like the ball popping out of his hand like it was dipped in vaseline you know (laughs) or or like running backwards 30 yards and taking a sack you know or just throwing like real dumb interceptions you know like all that appears to you know well i guess i'll put it this way and knock on wood if you wish like we haven't seen any of that stuff yet um and and what's left when you strip away you know all that nonsense that was you know really holding him back is just like this is a very accurate quarterback who can make off schedule plays you know and has good chemistry with you know this group of wide receivers and that's extremely dangerous that's you know the most valuable thing in college sports you know Absolutely. No, and exactly what you said about uh, DTR in terms of uh, the maturation process. We've literally seen it before our eyes, like his entire maturation process as a quarterback, because uh, one thing that we uh, mentioned on our podcast on Monday uh, that we recorded on Monday, I'm just going to say Monday, just make life easier. But um, one thing we mentioned is that DTR right now as a fifth year senior has as much experience playing quarterback as a starting quarterback, um, consistently playing the position as Josh Rosen did when he was a sophomore at UCLA because he started for four years in high school. So Mm -hmm. in terms of just raw number of years, DTR was a wide receiver uh, who kind of moonlighted as a quarterback until his senior year at Gorman. He played there for one year. And then since then, it's been it, it hasn't been consistent because Spate was ahead of him. Wilton Spate, the Michigan transfer, was ahead of him in his first year. Um he got injured the first game against Cincinnati. Once he started to get healthy towards the end of the season, DTR took a back seat and Spate played the games against Arizona state USC. And I think it was Stanford was the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also uh, DTR has had a couple of games each year where he's gotten hurt. So it's never been like a consistent, like 12 game run per year. It's not like he's on the verge of playing 60 games straight or something along those lines. It's been very, it's been a roller coaster for sure. Um, but what we're seeing with DTR is a couple of things. We're seeing, first of all, the benefits of maturity and not just maturity on the field, but maturity off the field. Like you can see a guy who is more comfortable in his own skin in general. He doesn't feel the need to play hero ball and prove himself all the time anymore. He'll do the occasional hurdle, which if he pulls it off, it's awesome. And if he gets smacked, you're like, you don't think he was playing but, hero ball against South Alabama? Um he probably needed to given how badly that game was going in all honesty. But I, th- I mean, I honestly, I think the reason we haven't seen hero ball out of DTR is not because that's not in him, but because like they were ahead against Washington, they were ahead against Utah. Um, it, I, he has, he'll never be a player 
with if you take away this the flair and the swagger and the intensity it, it, to like an annoying level to opposing fans he does some things that can rile up opposing fans very easily and i get that. i loved him signing uh, the hat yeah. at uc at usc that was great <laughs> i loved it legendary absolutely legendary i i uh, use that as the lead art on atq for a totally unrelated article it was so awesome Oh my goodness, that that one is, I, I don't think anyone will ever forget that. That was just so remarkable. But um, what was a UC, USC fan doing with a UCLA hat? Either way. That's, I, that, with, shoot your shot. That's what I guess. <laughs> but either way, um, no, he'll always have that in him to an extent. But you can tell, you can definitely tell that he doesn't feel the need to score 20 points on every play the way he did as an underclassman. He he seems more content. I don't think he'll ever be fully content because he knows what he can do in terms of breaking the game open. But he seems more content to take what is given to him and to concentrate on maximizing the outcome of ta- of what is available to him rather than yeah rather than the alternative and that in and of itself is the kind of maturity that he was lacking for so long and then in addition um i think he has it's impossible that you could be uncomfortable in an offense that you played in for five straight years like um and this is this uh, at, at its core an offense that he has gotten to learn over the last five years of his life with consistent tutelage from the a consistent group of people um, it wasn't Justin Fry who was working with him last year, like for example. Uh, it's either been Dana Bible or, or uh, I think it's uh, Gun- Eric. Is it Eric Ryan Gunderson? Excuse me, I had to remember mm-hmm. his uh, first name. Um, and then it's Chip Kelly installing the actual plays themselves. He has had the same essential group of people guiding his development the entire time, as opposed to somebody like I, I made a comparison to him before, but like Josh Rosen, who had three different coordinators in three, uh, his three years at UCLA. And once he got to the NFL, however many coordinators, he, was, he wasn't made for the modern game anyway. He's a 90s quarterback playing in whatever. But regardless, um, he never had that consistency. And so, and there are plenty of quarterbacks who never have the luxury of that consistency. So I think there's a lot that has gone into making DTR what he is right now. But he is a pl- he's hitting receivers in stride in a way that he wasn't before. He's taken what is given to him and being patient, um, letting certain plays develop um, in, ter- in ways that he wasn't before. Um, but there is also that flair element that he knows he brings to the table and he brings it out when he needs to. And so he's... He is a player who is at the peak of his powers in the college game right now. And sure, he's in his fifth year, but there are plenty of fifth-year quarterbacks who don't play as well as DTR has. And there's a lot that's gone into that. But if he didn't have the raw talent and the drive to maximize that raw talent, we wouldn't be seeing this right now. So a lot of it goes towards him as well. I remember when I was writing about uh, DTR in 2018, you know, when a lot of people were just like, this guy's the worst quarterback in the Pac-12, you know, and I was like, He's a true freshman. He's a four star for a reason. You can see the talent like you could, de- you could see the arm talent as a true freshman, you know, like, you know, and it was just a, you know, question of time, you know, and and this is about as close to ideal circumstances, you know, like who gets a fifth year, you know, <laughs> like who gets to be a starter from when they're a true freshman to when they're a grad student, um, you know, uh, it it's you know yeah peak of his powers it's it's a good way to put it i have a theory about uh going back to chip kelly's playbook i have a theory about why it's condensed so much and why there's not so much crazy tight end usage which is basically he doesn't have good tight ends right now um like i think he sort of lucked out with greg dulcich you know is is a high quality walk-on um i don't think that i've been seeing the same thing out of habermel and Ezekiel. not that they're terrible or anything but like 
you know, like, you know, the, the, the 2021 offense, it was, you know, Kyle Phillips was the possession receiver. Greg Dulcich was the big yardage receiver. The 2022 offense is just, it's Kaz Allen is the new Kyle Phillips and Jake Bobo is the new, you know, Greg Dulcich that it's not, you know, and so therefore it's not really about the, you know, it's Chip Kelly's offense wants somebody in the slot. You know, like he doesn't throw to outside receivers that much. And and like every time that Bobo lines up in the slot, it's like, oh, it's going to be Y cross and it's going to be for about 30 yards because, yep. you know, uh, and that's really what's going on more than any sort of like transformation of the playbook, you know, other than like calling out, you know, a, a lot of the nonsense. What do you think about that theory, Michael? No, I think that I think there's a lot of merit to that. Um, Hudson Habermel will never be the receiving threat that Dulcich was. Uh, Ezekiel will never have the hands to be the threat that Dulcich or Caleb Wilson or even Devin Asiasi really were um they are functional players who get enough done that you can't ignore them and they if you pay attention to too many other people they can catch the ball you know relatively decently enough that you know if you leave them open dtr will throw to them but they're not going to be focal points and so they've had to i think you're right that they've had to find different people to cast in what would be otherwise familiar roles but because of that um I think you're correct that uh, it's had to be a little bit more wide receiver heavy in order to fill those roles. And as a result, we see less emphasis on the tight ends. Um, th- I don't think that that necessarily is the reason why he stopped going funky formation in terms of like 14 or something like that, because um, the guys who he can get on the field still like a uh, Habermel or Preby, um guys who are a little bit further down the depth chart, Jack Peterson, the true freshman, they're decent enough blockers that if you need heft in there in a short yardage situation, they can do it. It's just that well, they're not short doing yard- that in short yeah, yard situations. Yeah, they they're just having yeah. DTR do it or they're or, you know, it, it, Kelly prefers, you know, when he's in short yard situation, he prefers he, he chooses himself. You know, he chooses a clever play call rather than uh, I'm going to trust my blockers and put a bunch of dudes on the field and pound it. You know, like Chip Kelly is Chip Kelly. He's not Mario Cristobal. I guess I I'd frame it that way. I think that's right. But we saw enough weird situations that went 13 and 14 over the last couple, a couple of years that, you know, know. he had it, he had it in there. Um, and it's just, it's not in there right now. So, and I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm it's not a complaint. Trust me. So, uh, yeah. I don't want to give Zach Charbonnet short shrift um, because he deserves all the accolades in the world. He's a great running back um, and he's continued to be a great running back. Um, but like, I kind of don't know how many questions about him. Like he's real good. I, I think he actually bails Chip Kelly out, you know, more times than not in, in terms of, or like, like I said, you know, this offensive line doesn't grade out very well for me um, in the run game, but like Charbonnet's is an excellent back and he sort of makes stuff happen. Um and, uh, you know, my, my question is like, um, is about the second guy. And I know I asked you this over the summer, but like, I, I sort of, you know, want to come back to it last year. It was Britton Brown, who is a really good backup. And this year it's Keegan Jones, who I think is a former walk-on. I, and I don't think he's, you know, Britton Brown's level. Uh, what do you think about that conjecture? No, I, that's absolutely right. Uh, Jones is a scholarship player. He was recruited as a scholarship player. Um, was he? What, what, yeah, yeah. Um, he had, he is a guy who ran track primarily in high school, but also played football when he declared for football officially the spring of his senior year. So after the recruiting season had passed, he got offers from Michigan and from Baylor in addition to UCLA. And he chose UCLA out of, I think he was Clarksville, Tennessee or something like that, but he, he's a track guy first and foremost. So, um, 
one thing that they have done with him that has driven me up a wall is there have been multiple important plays over the past couple of years. Um, for example, um, against USC two years ago at the Rose Bowl when uh, uh, they um, they allowed USC to come back and beat them in a game that they should just they should have been ashamed of for like an entire offseason. Um, a key play in that game was a short yardage situation where you have Britton Brown on the roster. You had Demetri Felton on the roster at that time. They handed it off up the middle on a fourth and one to Keegan Jones, who is a speed back who thrives in space. And he didn't get the yardage. Uh, USC um, ends up winning that game. Or that might have been Stanford. Either way, one way, or, it, I think it was Stanford, actually. But regardless, um, it was just one of those things. Like, why, is, why is Keegan Jones on the field in this situation? And there have been multiple times in short yardage situations because it's a third down for whatever reason. Deshaun Foster puts him out there. And it's why is Keegan Jones out there? He is not an adequate backup running back for the kind of thing that you want to do. But what they did against Utah that was very interesting is the plays that they ran when he was in the game. And I, I it's always interesting to me when they give people kind of typecast roles because I feel like defenses can adjust to it. But I think because they've used Keegan Jones so atypically from what he's supposed to be over the years that when they finally did what they're supposed to with him, it caught Utah off guard. Um, they used him on uh, speed options and pitches and stuff like that. It was like two or three plays. It wasn't anything insane. But they were the kinds of plays where they got into the outside, uh, used a little bit of just misdirection to move to get the linebackers moving in one direction. They got Keegan Jones going in the other, pitched it out to him, and he used his speed to get chunk plays. And that's the way you use Keegan Jones, and it's driven me crazy. that, that It literally took till the Utah game of his senior year before that finally really clicked. Uh, he's not a between-the-tackles back at all. Um, his hands are not that great. They just literally haven't recruited anyone that they trust more than him right now, unfortunately. Um, it was supposed to ideally be Deshaun Morrell, a kid they recruited out of, Al out of Alabama who was a four-star back who came down to UCLA and Penn State, and they got him. But he just has not shown the wheels or the between-the-tackles ability. And at that point, what do you put him on the field for? Um, he's, he's a player who's kind of been a little bit of a letdown. There's some speculation he'll be in the portal at the end of the season. But they don't really have an adequate backup running back right now. If Charbonnet's not in the game, um, when they used him very lightly in the non-conference, and they did their spots with him in the non-conference, they yeah. like I said, they used it as a preseason. I know yeah, you and saw they were, that they were putting the, the true yeah. freshman uh, uh, TJ Harden in a lot Correct. during. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, TJ Harden got a lot of run during the non-conference. But we um, have, but, like, I literally yeah. don't have a single snap of him during meaningful play, you know, over the last four games. Yep. Um, and then you're right about Jones' hands. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I, 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 I do not have a single target for, of him during meaningful play over the last four games. Um, in, you know, in the passing game, weren't in the screen game. And I mean, he's also the guy who, who, you know, fumble, you know, he dropped the pitch in that South Alabama game that turned into the fumble, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, I guess I, where I'm going with this is that like in the past, Chip Kelly has extensively used running backs in the passing game, you know, wheel routes and so forth. Um, and I, that feels like it's less of an emphasis this year. Um, I feel like I haven't really seen that as much. And I think a good part of it is like, um, it, you know, has to do with the depth situation, you know, um, it, it, you know, it's just, a, it's just not a whole lot of targets of the running backs or do you think I've missed something or, or what do you think? No, 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 you're spot on. No, I, the, the running backs have not been a real factor in the passing game. Um, they, because they've been, and I agree with you, what you're saying, I'm, I'm coming back to something we discussed earlier. I generally agree with you that the offensive line at UCLA is not amazing, but it's good enough given what the talent around them has been able to well, do otherwise against weaker defenses. I mean, it, I it guess it's been better than it was to start the season. They've made a, they've made a jump. 
Um, how good they are, we'll see, but it's been good enough to this point. Like, g- given the precariousness of the tackle situation, yep. it is, like, definitely heartening that they, you know, seem to have it resolved, at least at the starter basis, mm-hmm. you know, a, a potentially, like, catastrophic situation. Like, hooray. Um and the other thing is, you know, given Chip Kelly's, you know, uh, you know, play calling in the run game and given that he's got guys like Charbonnet, um, you know, who can sort of make magic. You're right. You know, yep. it does in the running game, you know, they've been more efficient, like like basically this is the the the. the all right. I've been but doing this for a long time. I can run correlation analyses between blocking uh, success and uh, run success and mm-hmm. their run success. They're punching above their weight class in terms of, you know, the, the, the blocking success should not predict this effective of a run game. And the reason that, you know, where the difference is, like the, re- the, the way that they're punching above their weight class is what we were talking about earlier um, in terms of like Chip Kelly stuff, in terms of like, I'm going to repeat this play because I detected a structural vulnerability mm-hmm. and you haven't been able to stop it. Um, and it, which is like, great, you know, like it's, but again, it's Chip Kelly stuff. And then the other thing that about the offensive line that I think you're a hundred percent right about is that in terms of it being good enough, is that like, this is such a simplified offense compared to previous Chip Kelly years that, you know, and there's really the balls really only going to two receivers. It's kind, kind of remarkable you know, that how short the list is of guys who are getting, you know, to 10 plus meaningful targets. Um, it's three guys. It's, it's Bobo. It's, it's, um, Kaz Allen and, and, uh, and Cam Brown has gotten a bunch of targets, but they haven't yep. all been completions. Um, so he sort of like doesn't show up in the stat sheet unless you're charting games. Um, and, and you know, so it's like, I, I don't want to, um, the term that I'm about to use sometimes has negative connotations. I don't mean it that way, but like DTR has been a very effective first read quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that like the play is set up for him to make one throw and he makes that one throw. And if it's not there, he makes something happen because that's what he is capable of doing. You know, that is what his talent is. And so the fact that I think that this line, I think that this line would never give DTR three seconds against a competent defensive line. I don't Mm -hmm. really think that DTR uh, set aside the question of whether or not he is capable of going through a full four read progression, you know, as a pocket passer, that's a question for NFL scouts to figure out, you know, when, when he's going to be drafted next year, but like, it's a moot point. Cause this line's never going to give him you know, a, cause this line's never going to give him three seconds and B because that's not the nature of this offense. The nature of this offense is there is one target on this play and everybody else is a decoy. Um, and, DTR knows it and he makes that throw. And if that throw's not there, he makes something up on his own. And Chip Kelly trusts him to do that. And he's, he's very effective. I'll stop there. What do you make of that theory? No, 100%. Um, I, you know, what's funny is that that's something that UCLA fans have kind of been calling for. Uh, like, I, I have no problem with if, if we want to call him a one read quarterback, he's making he's he's making that one read and delivering on it really well. So yeah. I'm good with it. We're winning games. Screw it. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. No, no. The, the results, the ends. Just I mean, it's means. college. Yeah. You know, like yeah. NFL scouts are not going to like that. But who cares? You know, yeah. like those guys can all. You know, but what about when UCLA plays an NFL team? <laughs> What's going to happen next? Is it when they play Georgia in the Peach Bowl? Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. It didn't work out for us. Yeah. But um, <laughs> across that bridge when we get to it. But um, but no, I I have no problem with saying that because I think that it's pretty clear that most plays are designed to go to one place or otherwise break it off and do what you can. Um, it, it's been pretty clear um, based on the usage of certain players and the design of certain plays. I think that's very fair to say. And the reason I came back to the offensive line is essentially to say that um, it, 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 there was a point to it in relation 
relation to Charbonnet. I, I know I kind of diverted us, digressed us a little bit. I, I'm glad but, that you remembered. Yeah. I <laughs> go, no, no. go for it. Yeah, yeah, but it's essentially that I would love to see what UCLA's line yards are because I, I there have been plenty of plays where I feel like UCLA's probably going to get like three, four yards out of it, but because Charbonnet is so nimble on his feet, those three, four yards turn into 20-yard runs. Um, I, I feel like I've seen that that happen so many times already this season in the conference schedule that it's a, I, the line has been better than I expected given the turnstile that it was against Bowling Green. They have improved, but also they have really talented weapons and experienced weapons around them in DTR and Charbonnet to accentuate any of the good and minimize any of the bad. But you need that symbiotic relationship in order to bring the best out of everybody. So I don't have a problem with that. They're, they're picking their spots. They're sticking. They're, this is something that I've wanted from Chip Kelly, from a Chip Kelly offense for the last five years. Stick to what you're good at. Don't get involved in a bunch of crap that you're not good at otherwise and really exploit your strengths. And it doesn't have to be the blur in terms of tempo, but go back to the classic Chip Kelly tenant of when you see your opponent's weak weakness, jab the ever loving crap out of it until it bleeds. That's what it, what he did right. at Oregon. That's what I was expecting to see at UCLA. He's finally doing it at UCLA. Well, so the, I'm going to the downside to it or, or the, the, the potential like Wiley E coyote running out over the cliff. And then it turns out there's no cliff anymore. Uh, is that like, what happens when you play a complete defense, you know, like the, and I don't know if Oregon is that I'm just, I'm sort of talking in, about the future and hypotheticals. I mean, you mentioned potential playoff, you know, births and like, that's sort of the, you know, I, I guess what I would say you asked about, you know, what would the ALY be? I don't have that in front of me, but I can tell you, you know, from my charting that I, cause I've been doing this for a decade and I've got a formula that predicts this stuff. This offensive lines run blocking effectiveness would predict about a 44.5% rush efficiency, meaning, you know, given the down and distance they got enough yards to stay ahead of the sticks um mm. the uh but their actual rush efficiency is 52.5 percent, so an eight percent jump um which is enormous an eight percentage point jump in efficiency you know over baseline is i mean crazy town i was on an adams podcast earlier and i compared a point of efficiency to a foot of sea level rise um so like oh. yeah you're underwater now you know like that's a tsunami <laughs> coming in um and it comes down to two things Num number one is the chip kelly thing the like i found a defensive vulnerability and i'm gonna exploit the hell out of it and number two is Zach Charbonnet's a really good running back who like makes something out of nothing. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think either of those things are going away anytime soon. So like, you know, you should treat it as a 52.5% efficient team because that's what it is. Yep. And uh, the thing about facing a complete defense, the reason I don't worry about that is because I don't see one on the rest of our schedule. Well, if we, if we, if we, if we I, I, Cal, I mean, like, yeah, I know. Uh, hey, UCLA schedule looks fairly similar. Remaining schedule looks fairly similar to Oregon's remaining schedule. And I've had yeah. exactly the same. Thoughts. I mean, if they, if they play Georgia, in the peach bowl for example we have gone so far beyond what i expected sure. for this team that i treated as found money at that point it, it, i'm already so far ahead at the table that if my heater comes to an end against like a like a shark or something like that okay cool screw it my team was in the playoff i'm fine with that you know I, at that point i will treasure the journey that was and kind of just move on with my life um but on their remaining schedule I, I don't see that team and I didn't see that team on the schedule coming into the season, which is one of the reasons I was kind of less worried about that factor. Yeah. If they, if they face Georgia 
or I haven't seen enough Ohio State to know whether they bring that to the table. But let's just say Georgia, for example. If they face Georgia, okay, screw it. At that point, it is what it is. I know what my fate is, and I'm already I'm consigned to it. But Georgia's not coming up until we make certain things happen, and nobody's going to offer that threat until then. So I, I think UCLA's offense can continue to be successful. Um, one of the things that I mentioned on uh, on our podcast that we uh, dropped yesterday was that um, a couple of things that they're I, and I might be stepping on toes here, and I apologize for that, but. Um, Two factors that they haven't had to face this season that make me a little bit twitchy about this weekend. Uh, first of all, obviously the uh, the away crowd factor. The only away mm-hmm. team they played, so the only game away they played so far is uh, Colorado, and uh, Boulder is not Eugene these days. We can say that mildly. Um, and then also having hey, to deal with Boulder Alan. had a more impressive crowd than uh, UCLA did. Uh, you know, like I, 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 I'll throw some shade back. Like, no, no, you know, it's, it, it's I was just, I, I just finished watching Colorado beat Cal in front of a full uh, uh, stadium. And the game that I had just most recently finished was UCLA beating five and O, you know, or, or, you know, as a five and O team beating the defending conference champion, Utah in front of a, crowd of what 10,000 people with five tarps you yeah, know like it's we can get in I, I I'll defend it in a sense if it comes to it or or not defend it it's indefensible but I'll explain it at the very least if it ever came to it I, I know that that's taking us way off course right there I wasn't throwing shade at Colorado fans I'm saying that the way that, the, that just the noise is just trapped in a different way Oh yeah, stadium. Folsom doesn't trap noise at all. I, I yeah. totally know what you mean. Well, it's an open. Yeah. It's it's like a horseshoe style design. It doesn't. Yep. Yeah. Um, so and then the elements. And, as and well. I think maybe yeah. Oregon is a little better team than Colorado is. Slightly. I, is another factor. No, a little bit. Uh, you, you know, I, I feel like they might be favored on a neutral field. But um, but yeah, the, dealing with the rain as well for an offense that's been humming this well. I'm just talking about man. Never rains in Austin Stadium. Yeah, I, I I've seen that for. Is that a thing? I've seen that on yeah. Twitter a couple times as well. Like, uh, Don you, Essig, the 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 play the playback guy play in the stadium. That's his catchphrase. It's like oh okay, I didn't I, I did not know that. Yeah. Um. But so, yeah, so you're good. Don't worry about it. I, I, apparently so. But um, I, I just worry about these situations. Like for example, you have. You have Logan Loya running that mesh crossing route that he ran against Utah, but when the hand when the ball hits his hands, rather than him catching and running for seventy yards, he drops it, and instead of you know goal to go after breaking off a fifty yard play, instead it's third and ten, and they're not able to convert, and it's a punt. Like those kinds of just wild swings of fortune because of elemental related concerns. It, this is UCLA; they're not used to playing in anything resembling any elements. So. Mm. Um, so it's I am worried that for an offense that's running this efficiently right now against teams that were supposed to be competitive against UCLA and despite relatively deceptive scores in terms of margin UCLA healthily no out, no UCLA blew out well you don't got to convince yep. me of that like they were they blew out Washington and, and they were basically in control of Utah I yep. actually to the point where like I actually think they killed them a little too bad and now I'm seriously questioning whether or not Washington and Utah are good teams um those both of those teams strike me as like fairly incomplete and not as advertised. I just I don't see a complete team in this conference this year. I see a yeah. lot of teams of the same mold that are really good on offense and mediocre to bad on defense. I don't see the team that's even the inverse of that, quite frankly. Well, speaking of which, uh, let's talk about UCLA's defense. Hey, podcast listener. Hey, come you. over here. Come yeah. over here. Get over here. Yeah. Nice headphones you got in here. Oh, yeah, I like those, Chevy. 
be a shame if something were to happen to those headphones, eh? Stomped them on the ground, eh? Be real easy to avoid that smashing if you went over to the Quack12 Twitter account and gave us a little follow. Just a little follow, that's all we're asking. And hey, look at that. I hear you listening to your new podcast apps in your car, huh? Driving home, making the long journey feel a little shorter, eh? Is that yeah. what he's doing there, bud? <laughs> yeah, turning your three-hour drive into a nice little vacation, huh? Be a shame if your car ended up on the bottom of a lake. Splash. Splash maybe with you in the trunk of it, huh? Glug, glug, guzzle, guzzle. Maybe all that can be avoided with a little trip to the quack. 12 page on Apple Podcasts. All you got to do is go to Apple Podcasts, Quack 12, give us five stars. Yeah, the internet. You got it, bud. Five stars. Leave us a little comment. Help other people find it. Maybe it'll help people find you when they find out that you're gone missing if you catch my drift. You seen the posters on the telephone poles? Yeah, those are those are people that didn't give us fucking five stars. Some of them did, and we did it anyways. And then uh, you know, uh, oh hey, hey look at look at this podcast listener on their long inner inner uh, continental flight, making things not so bad. Not wanting to hear that baby by covering it up. Wah wah, so they say, putting on them headphones. Trying to get the sky waitress's attention. Get over here. Give me more of that Quack 12 podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you? Yeah. You want some more of that Quack 12 podcast, don't you? Yeah. You want to buy some more from us, don't you? Get it. Otherwise, you know, because if you don't buy this Quack 12 podcast insurance, you never know when your plane's going to go straight down into the water, into the old Atlantic, never to be seen again. Glug, glug, guzzle, guzzle. In case you don't want to be th- part of the rock and roller club of the bottom of the fucking ocean, then I recommend you go to the Quack 12 Patreon. Come on, come on. Why don't you go to the Quack 12 Patreon, give us five smackaroos, and for that we can forget about the whole nasty business have you on your way. We'll forget about it. We'll forget about it, all right? Five measly dollars. That's all I got. Now listen up, punk. Because it looks like you're not seeing so good right now. My boss is talking to you, chump. Aren't you, chump? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. All right, let him him go, Mikey. Let him go. In the bottom of the fucking ocean. Ayo! Quack, quack. Um, I just as an overview, I don't really think this defense is any great shakes. I don't really think that uh, uh, McGovern has you know fundamentally transformed this. You know, I'm still basically seeing a you know an even surface. You know, it's basically a four two five. Although they mess around with the labels of everybody, the the efficiency numbers are are underwater. Um, and uh, you know they've got some interesting you know pass rushers certainly. Um, but beyond that, it's sort of like a, a revolving door at defensive back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure that I like anybody in the inside linebacker core. Um, and it's been difficult to assess the interior defensive line because it's sort of the injury issues that you mentioned already. But like you know, I, I don't know. If there's any All Americans on this 
defense like at all. Um, I'll stop there. Do you disagree with any of that? None of that. the closest that could come to that probably maybe an all conference performer so far has been Laiatu Latu, but um, at defensive yeah. end. Beyond that, no, it's been. It, this has been the epitome of bend but don't break and basically hold it together with duct tape in the red zone. That's essentially what they've done. Yeah, um, I, I, I 100% agree with that assessment. It's worked for them in terms of keeping um, their uh, letting their offense get fresh off the field, um, which I don't know. I, I, I'd rather win games by 50 points, have the offense on the field the, the whole time. But at the very least, they they may the, the thing that they have done, um, to my recollection anyway, is that they've beyond one Michael Penix throw in the first quarter against Washington, they've limited plays over the top. Um, and so they really have been the classic. If you're going to drive the ball down the field on us, you may do so, but it's going to take you eight to nine plays to do so. And we're not going to let you get more than 15 to 20 yards, a chunk. If that, um, that you're not going to get the, you're not going to get the 50 to 60 yard bomb over us. It, it seems like that's the intent that they've built in here. And there's the expectation that at some point, because this is a college team, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. And maybe, maybe, Maybe it's a decent enough bet, especially given the way UCLA's offense has been playing, that it's the right complementary style um, to minimize the deficiencies of this defense. Um, one of the comparisons I made, uh, and I know I've made this reference 500 times already, but it, it's amazing to me how much our conversation right now is overlapping with what we discussed on uh, the, our podcast on the B team earlier this week. Great um, minds, right? Yeah, yeah always. Um, so the, the, the really... I haven't noticed any structural differences in this defense. Really, the difference between this defense that Bill McGovern has right now and what Jerry Azanero had the last four years is that Laiatu Latu can get to the quarterback every once in a while, and that has cascading effects down the defense. Sure. Beyond that, beyond that, there's really nothing that different. There's nothing that special or there's no mystique to it. It's basically they have a tackle for loss every once in a while, whereas they had none before. And that's really the only difference. Well, and they don't have a, a real penetrating interior defensive lineman like they did in 2020. Um, like Odigzua? Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that was, you know, I remember when I ran the correlation analysis in 2020 where like there was a 93% correlation between Odigzua having a good play and UCLA winning the play defensively. Like if he either wasn't, you know, in on the play, like he was getting Gatorade or he had a bad play, then UCLA was going to fail the play. <laughs> like I, it was crazy. And and that's because it. he was like a dominant interior, you know, uh, you know, rusher. And like, I don't really think they have those. They, they've got, you know, you know, I've got about five guys that I see in, our, in a regular rotation, you know, Sykes, Toya, uh, Magna, Smith, and Havili Kafusi. Yep. Um, and, and they're just sort of like, they're they're space eaters, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's 100% correct. The, the they, structure, gotten, any right. rush has come from the Murphys or from Lyons. Yeah. Too much. yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you a structural question about the the edge guys. Like, the Murphys are both listed as defensive linemen. Mm -hmm. Um Latu and Carl Jones, number 35, um, are listed as linebackers, but like they're I defensive ends, all of them. Yeah, I, like that, well, they're not even yeah, I'm not even sure There's I'd no be comfortable pretense. calling it's, them defensive yeah. ends in a yeah. you know traditional 4-3 system. I think they're more like they're outside linebackers. Um uh, do, they're designated pass rushers. That's really what they are. Yeah, I mean, I sort of, and, and they're not interchangeable because I think they have different talent levels and a little sure. different skill sets. But like, yeah. basically, I, I think that, you know, uh, bo both of the Murphys, Latu and Jones are effectively playing schematically the same position. Like, they're not asking those guys to, you know, oh, we need to put Latu in instead of Grayson Murphy because he's going to get us this and not that. Like, 
it's just like whoever is available, you know, and that they're playing the same role. Do you think I have that right? 100%. This defense is literally Latu, Murphy, Murphy, and Jones. You go get the quarterback. Defense tackles. You keep the space in the middle. Everybody else, you slip into your uh, cover two shell. That's mm-hmm. that. that it, it, this defense, there aren't. There's nothing if magical about it. Um, random. I guess uh, what was I going to call them? Um, not couch potatoes. Monday morning quarterbacks could figure this out. Um, yeah. There's nothing special about what they're doing. It's just the fact that they happen that they happen to win from the edge every once in a while, and because they happen to win from the edge every once in a while, they are able to drop well, seven back into their zo- traditional. When, zone when your and, conference opponents yeah. are always playing from behind and have to pass, you know, three quarters of their plays against you, that like, yeah, you know, yeah. like oh, yeah, having sure. a pass rush is you know is going to have you know enhanced uh, effects. But, um, yeah, one of the things that we talked about on our podcast was the idea of. Um, actually, it's a weird discussion that we had, but we mentioned that the coin toss has been particularly uh, nice to UCLA because they've won the coin toss in every conference game they've played so far. They've deferred every time, and they've won the middle eight every time. And so by the time you get That's to interesting. the— Oregon is the same way. Actually, Arizona yeah. won, but they wanted the ball, which was foolish. Um, I, oh, gosh. Ooh, maybe that'll um, decide the game. Maybe the game will come down to the coin toss. I actually, no joke, actually said that the co- the winner of the coin toss is going to have a distinct advantage in this game. Yeah. Um, because that's what UCLA has done against Washington and Utah, especially. They didn't need to against Colorado. But against Washington and Utah, they got the ball basically with the last real drive of the half. They either put up points or they drove down the field and pinned the opposition back. And on the first drive of the second half, they've scored touchdowns. And by the time that Washington or Utah really got the ball back with a chance to move it, they were down double digits, whereas they were down single digits when the end of the second half was coming down. And I'm I'm telling you, literally Oregon has done exactly the same thing in in each of their last five games. I Um, see a lot of similarities between the teams. I really do. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking on offense. Yeah, definitely. Um, Maybe we uh, should switch coaches, see what happens. this game. I would uh, love to have your recruiting staff. That's for sure. But, uh, uh, you mean guys who recruit? I, yeah, that one week of Oregon's recruiting staff there could actually do a whole lot of good there. I feel. But um, also, I'm not sure I need Adrian Clem back in my life. But that's another discussion. Mm-hmm. For another day. Speaking of Clem is an interesting figure. I've now written a couple different articles about Clem. I mean, he inherited the offensive line at Oregon. So, like, yep. we're not going to find out whether or not he's whatever those problems he was encountering at UCLA, you know, whether or not that's going to, he's fixed them or not. We're not going to find that out for like another two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's like a, like, like all the Oregon fans are just like, this puts to rest all doubts about Adrian Clement. I'm like, he inherited five starters guys. Like, yep. you know, like, okay. He hasn't actively sabotaged them. Like, I should, you know, I should hope not. No, but, they uh, have that institutional knowledge. I mean, say this, say what you will about Cristobal. Um, manufacturer of offensive lines par excellence like he's damn good coach when it comes to that in that regard so um yeah and if i read correctly oregon has four redshirt seniors or four seniors on the offensive line uh i don't i covid has messed with me in that way i i don't know what the year in school is i expect they've been in the program for a while Yes, I mean, they okay. were uh, this basically this core of this group was the starters in 2020 and 2021 as well. Gotcha. They lost basically their entire offensive line after the 2019 Rose Bowl season. So mm-hmm. like this, this sort of like core of this group has been together for the last three seasons. Gotcha. Um, so uh, uh, back to UCLA uh, yeah. and back to the defense. Um, uh, 
uh, inside linebackers. Um, I've been seeing four guys, uh, Musau, uh, the, the transfer, um, uh, Vaughn, the baseball player, uh, Shea Bryant, Struther, and, and Calvert, one of the like three, I think, Calvert brothers were bumping around the Pac-12 um, as the two backups. Any standouts here for you? Um, the best one, in my opinion, the one who has shown the best instincts, the best range has actually been John John Bonds. And I, it, was it when I talked to you guys that you told me how ridiculous the name John John was? Yes, that was me. Yeah. I, I despise yep. it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember our conversation. I'm telling you. Um, so, uh, yeah, but he has been particularly good in finding the ball in coverage. He he is more rangy than any of the other ones who would drop into coverage from I, inside. I spot. mean, he's a baseball player. He ought yep. to be. Makes sense. You know, it's definitely logical. Um, Muasau started off the season very, very slowly in the non-conference schedule. He's been a little bit better, but he's not Eric Hendricks by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, but I, he's, he's he's functionally fine for he's, what he's done. I so mean, far. he had that really dramatic in interception, I believe. Yes, he's um, correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's had a couple of really dramatic plays. Like, if I wanted to, uh, if I, if I were his agent and I needed to assemble a highlight reel of him from his just from his UCLA tape, I could probably you know make one you know fairly easily. But like, he grades out is the worst defender on the uh, on on UCLA's you know the, their front seven or front six, I guess. I oh, has say. he really? I, I, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I, I I would if. If it was him and Vaughn's on the field, I trust Vaughn's a little bit more right now. I trust the four guys ahead of him a little bit more. So actually, you know what? Now that I logic it out, I could see it. Um, I mean, you're not going to put him ahead of the edge rushers. And like, no. it's hard to compare an inside linebacker to a, a defensive tackle. Um, but like, sure. yeah, I mean, honestly, like from from their grades, I would have Calvert as the starter, not Musau. Um, But it sounds like that's probably never going to happen. They they brought in Muasau based on his resume, yeah. uh, all Mountain West guy at Hawaii. They brought mm -hmm. him in to kind of stabilize the middle linebacker role with a guy who actually has middle linebacker instincts. I'm not sure the extent to which he's shown those yet. Besides besides a couple of flash plays, like you mentioned, um, the cumble the the cumble, wow the fumble he caused. I flipped those mm -hmm. um, against Utah was a particularly notable middle linebacker fills the gap kind of play that I've been hoping to see more of from him. And that was a great one that had a huge impact on the result of that game, but are um, basically in solidifying the victory for UCLA in that game. Um, but there haven't been enough of those moments for me to be like, Oh wow, this is the guy that was as advertised. He's perfectly functional, but he hasn't gone to the level of good quite yet. In my opinion. Uh, secondary. Um, uh, a, a big cast of characters. I've got, you know, at least eight guys with significant reps. Um, you know, it's a nickel, so it's already going to be, you know, a bigger cast of characters. Um, who do you think is the best defensive back that they play? It's an interesting one because, I mean, coming into the season, I would tell, I would have told you that Devin Kirkwood uh, is the best or the most talented with the highest upside. But the guy who has really been impressive for me in a way that I didn't expect him to, given his time in the program and his lack of real ability to lock down a starting spot until the season, has been Mo Osling. And Osling has been the last line of defense in a decently sure tackler in a way that he was not before this season. So he's caught me by surprise, but in a very good way, because he's always had range and athleticism and size. But in terms of understanding his role, I don't know if he was quite there until this season. He hasn't been a perfect safety by any stretch of the imagination, but he's caught my, my eye more than the rest. The one that sort of baffles me, uh, well, there's two guys who, who have a bunch of playing time, and I'm sort of baffled because they grayed out very poorly for me and i'm wondering what you think of them mm -hmm. uh, is uh number six humphrey and number 22 hearn yep um i 
they just have really low grades on my tally sheet and yet they're on the field all the damn time. Do you think I'm wrong about that? What do you think about those two guys? There's nobody else. Uh, Quite honestly, there's nobody else (laughs) behind them. I think you have, um, you have Kamari Ramsey, who's a safety. He's not going to play corner. You have Quint mm-hmm. Stevens, who can swing between the two. But again, true freshman. Uh, John Humphrey was a mid four star guy, which is a rarity under Chip. And Azizi Hearn uh, was a guy they trans they recruited specifically from Wyoming from the transfer right. portal to play the uh, slot corner spot. So those guys essentially have their spots guaranteed to them, and there's not really much behind them. Uh, so you kind of almost have to play them by default in a sense, and that's their presence on the field. I would be much more comfortable with them as fifth and sixth guys than I am as every down kind of guys because Humphrey, there is physical talent there. Hearn, I think, is just he, he is what he is at this point. He's a yeah. fifth year senior. Um, but Humphrey, there is talent in there that can be unlocked. I think if you get him to his senior year and he's not completely toast in his mind by then, I think he could be a perfectly good player. I never, I don't think he'll ever be great, but I think he could be good. Um, but right now, he's not there yet. But there's nobody really behind him that you could put in there that has a similar level of athleticism or that you could expect even as much from because of a lack of experience. So, um, you well, UCLA's painted itself into a corner there. Yeah, I really, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it was something that was just remarkable, you know, when we were recording over the summer, because, you know, it was just this, you know, it, it felt like a total revolving door, you know, like th- this was an enormous defensive back room that they were constantly bringing in transfers, even though, you know, they had recruited players, you know, but it was just like, well, you suck though. So I'm going to get this Wyoming player, you know, and, and like, I can't even really blame it because I, I kind of do. Uh, and, but it's, you know, so it hasn't really surprised me that this is how the secondary is played out. Um, I, I, I don't like, I do think that they, I, I, I the one bright spot in the efficiency numbers is the, um, the the they're not giving up huge rushes or at least they haven't really given up a huge rush yet um mm-hmm. they're actually you know even though the rushing efficiency in terms of like you know the the running back the opposing running back like ekes out enough yardage to, to stay ahead of the sticks you know they get like five yards or whatever but they're you know they're only about 11 percent of, of runs from opponents are gaining 10 plus yards which is a pretty good number um and and they're generally allowing only about five and a half yards you know which is actually a better than average number um and i think that comes down to like safety play um you know just essentially effectively the safeties are making tackles yep. um and uh so like for example uh well the the two guys that we haven't really talked about you know is blaylock and churchwell and like those guys are 50 50 guys for me on my tally sheet you know in terms of you know like about half the plays they're in on they play well and about half the plays they're in on they don't play well uh but like they tackle you know and they keep you from from getting a you know a, a, a play breaking into a touchdown and like and as you say, sort of like make the opposing team, you know, march down the field, um, which, you know, most of the teams that UCLA has played have not been able to do that with the bizarre exception of South Alabama. It's it, we literally again, I, I you guys are there, there's so much. I, I'm not saying that anyone shouldn't listen to us, but there's an amazing amount of overlap with the points that we're making. And mm. we, we actually we we mentioned the fact that we were kind of doing a trend recap at this point where things have been and where they've gone and what they've come to so far. And it it was remarkable that South Alabama was the team that had the best beat on UCLA out of everybody they played so far. 
Um, really, I, 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 and, I honestly yeah. think that's because South Alabama is the best team that UCLA has played. <laughs> like, I don't like I just finished watching that USC Utah game and like good for Utah. Anybody who beats USC, like, you know, tear down the goalposts like uh, that's great. You know, <laughs> like yep. I, no, no one's happier. I, I will take a backseat to nobody in 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 delighting in USC losing, games, especially when they mismanage a game that should have been a win for them. Um <laughs> You know, but, you know, watching that game was super frustrating because, like, I really felt like both of those were, like, really incomplete teams. Um, and I and like, it, I don't know if you felt this way. We've been agreeing about everything. So maybe, you know, since this is probably uh, UCLA's best win to date, maybe you'll be upset with me for suggesting this. But like, no, not at all. Um, These are incomplete. It's something I mentioned before. The Pac-12 right now, the, the top tier of the Pac-12 seems to be teams that have really good offenses weak enough defenses that can be that can be very much exploited and the middle to bottom tiers are teams that aren't even on that level so i i I think that whenever you put the top four teams in the conference this season ucla oregon usc utah on a field together you're gonna have 30 plus points on each side it's just it, it seems inevitable so um it's it's one of those things where i i feel like for the next month and a half of my life of my life i'm gearing up for track meets so <laughs> it, it is what it is um uh, that is what the Pac-12 is this season. It works to UCLA's advantage because their defense is there to be exploited, but they have an offense that can counterbalance it. That's great. So um, or I'm not sure it works to its advantage, but it hasn't bitten them completely yet. It probably might will do this weekend. But yeah, the, the um, well, I, I just have to get in any USC snark I can. You're telling me that in terms of mismanagement, you're telling me that Lincoln Riley can't take his timeouts home. He doesn't get a bonus for them. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is that the discussion it. we're having right now? I, I just even that, that, when he gets free ones from the refs, unbelievable. They literally could have gone into that last drive with two minutes on, not two minutes, but like a minute and thirty on the clock. But for whatever reason, it's like, no, let me just keep these in my back pocket because I'm going to need three timeouts with a Caleb Williams offense. Well, like, you got to trust that USC defense in that situation, you know? Uh, yeah, because because <laughs> they've just shown out so well so far this season. My goodness. <laughs> um, but but anywho, regardless of that, I, I do think that the the conference is. There, there's no national champion in this conference. It's it's flawed teams who happen to excel on one side of the what all excel on one side of the ball and all have flaws on the other side of the ball. And because of that, I think that a lot of what's going to determine these matchups are going to be circumstantial factors. Like UCLA might lose to Oregon this weekend. They might win. I, and I, I know that's a glib way of saying it, but there's any number of reasons that could decide the difference between these teams, but I still no, yeah, I mean, come away from it believing that unless one team really runs it up and I just don't see the way that they'd be over, able to overcome that weakness, that you could flip a coin another day and have the ball bounce another way and the other team wins. I, I don't think that what you're going to see on the field is really going to be determinative in terms of like this team is definitively better. It's just going to be a series of results. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. You know, this is looking like it's going to be, a, you know, the anybody who wants to just like point at the scoreboard and say, well, this definitively proves that, you know, team A was, you know, uh, in an, an entire level above team B, you know, because they won the game by, you know, you know, one or two or three or, you know, by one score. It's just like, forget it, man. Like any one score game is a ball bounce game, you know, like, yep. um, like, you know, that's, you know, like now on the other hand, the, you know, UCLA played a one score game technically against Washington that wasn't, you know, that was a blowout that you know, sort of Washington came back in. Um, well, and I mean, the other matters. Context absolutely matters, but yeah. Oh well, I guess I bring that up because, or, or or there's a sort of a mirror here, which is the last time Oregon and UCLA played. You know, like Oregon won the middle, 
you know, middle two quarters and, and it was a big game or, you know, it's a big lead. And then DTR just like goes crazy, man. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, he like single-handedly, you know, dragged that team back into, you know, it being a one score game, you know, in, in what was sometimes some people perceive this term as pejorative. I don't use it that way. It's just, you know, what it is, you know, that was garbage time, you know, it was a bunch of garbage time scores, but like, hell yeah man you know like that that dude's a super dangerous quarterback and he was sort of rescuing chip kelly from in my opinion some like screwy both play calling and like his decisions about how you were going to do pass protection you know for it was like are you trying to get him killed um you know but dtr was capable of doing that and like if anything he's more capable of doing that this year so like yeah like there's no lead is safe is where i'm going with this like for sure um, it, actually, that brings me to some it, it, the fact that you brought up this game, uh, the Oregon game uh, from last year. I, I, one, I do see the comparisons to the Washington game that UCLA played again, uh, played this year in terms of the the kind of the, the game flow in a sense. Um, UCLA gets up early. Oregon just takes control of the game. UCLA has come back late. It looks deceptively closer than it actually was in real life. But um, one of the things that really impacted the game last year, and I mean, it's uh, it, it's not a throwaway comment. It is the truth. Um the Oregon's edge rush really was able to get to DTR like you talked yeah. about. Um, I know Brandon Dorless is a standout on the Oregon uh, defensive line, but do they have anybody like a Thibodeau no. who can get to uh-uh. DTR this season? Okay. No, it's the number one thing that's missing from Oregon is they don't have a, an elite pass rusher. Um, they, they've been they're I, in my opinion, if you want to know, I, I think this is the, the most talented and most complete defensive line in the PAC 12 or like defensive front. If you want to include the OLBs, you know, as part of that, um, you know, it's deep, it's big. They, they, it's an excellent rush defense. You've been throwing shade at the entire Pac-12, and I've been trying to bite my tongue. It's like Oregon's rush defense is actually a lot better than that um, than the rest of the Pac-12s. But like, yeah, pass defense, like they just don't really have a pass rush. Um, and you know that they, they they can get into the backfield, but they've not been effective at producing sacks. And they play a bunch of quarterbacks who just you know kind of spin out of it and and, and you know keep looking downfield and like DTR is the quarterback par excellence at that so like i wouldn't expect him to see i I wouldn't expect to see dtr on his back a whole lot in this game no and it's an interesting one and i i mean i i don't know if you guys are intending to go into an like an explicit game preview quite yet but but if i but my mind just went there in terms of thinking about the, the kind of relative weaknesses of the teams like UCLA, you can get at them through the air and on the ground to certain uh, to certain extents, um, but you're better off controlling things on the ground, just churning them for six to seven yards. I mean, just bleeding them well, out. Well, and also bleeding the clock, keeping the ball out of DTR's hands. Absolutely. You know? But on the flip side, UCLA is better off throwing against this Oregon uh, defense from what I have seen of it. Mm. When you add the elemental factors, I feel like there's a lot that's pointing to Oregon having advantages in this game like i hate the idea of throwing in the rain because i'm a california guy mm. um I, I i don't like the idea of facing a deep running back core with a good offensive line like oregon has against the defense that really isn't made to make plays behind the line of scrimmage and keep teams off schedule it's really bend but don't break but if you're going to run the ball for eight to ten yards a clip just keep running it until they stop you i, I feel like that's going to be the best way for oregon to win and given the elemental factors and the home field advantage i don't see why oregon just doesn't do that keep dtr off the field and win the game 30 21 call I, it a day i mean i guess ucla is 
I, I, I compile a, a statistical profile, you know, based on charting, you know, that basically, you know, lists out where the strengths and weaknesses are. And like UCLA is the best version that Oregon has played of a certain archetype of team. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, UCLA is the same archetype of team that they have played, you know, basically four straight games, uh, you know, BYU, uh, Stanford, uh, uh, Arizona and uh, and Wazoo um, and all four of them. That's been precisely you know oregon has has looked at that situation and said well better run the ball um and you know and and keep it out of the dangerous opposing quarterback's hands and you know hit some play action shots when they bring the safeties down you know when they you know they're they're playing cover zero that's the time to throw the ball but otherwise just run it and you know and and bleed out some clock you know and then you know win the middle eight um you know and and i i don't know if you know because i screw making predictions who knows but like you know, uh, 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 or I guess I don't want to make predictions about whether or not they're going to be successful at that. But I will make a prediction, you know, given that, you know, they look at a statistical profile that looks like this. They use the obvious strategy and that obvious strategy has been effective. You know, don't if it ain't brick don't, broke, don't change it. You know, I, I figure they're going to do the same thing. So, like, yeah, exactly. And and who knows, you know, if, if weather is going to be a factor um, or not. It's the other thing is like you're relying on the weather report in oregon i got news for you <laughs> like that's a bad idea um like you, you're you'd be smarter to bet on college football than bet on the weather in oregon um, um it, it says 80 percent chance of rain but i i what i was told was that the rain it would be something more like it'd be like misting or drizzle like it wouldn't be torrential kind of a thing well oregon just very rarely gets torrential rain yeah. um at all and then of course there is a zero percent chance of rain in Austin stadium so oh, uh <laughs> you know but like if it is a if whatever elements um, indicate that you should run the ball. Yeah. I would, you know, I think Oregon's offense is more balanced, you know, like the, you know, the, the, and I really feel like I'm not necessarily making a comment about, you know, UCLA versus Oregon here, just sort of like what I have observed about UCLA in general is that that's a team that wants to pass to win. And that's actually somewhat unusual for Chip Kelly's history, but like, I think that's the balance of where, <clears throat> um, UCLA's strengths are offensively or really just across the team, you know, including the defense as well. Like the strength of UCLA is when the ball is in DTR's hands, like yep. period, full stop. Yeah, they don't have the depth at running back, running back to support anything else. They have more receivers that they can rely on. No game breakers, really, beyond. I, I wouldn't even go so far as to call Bobo a game breaker. He's a really, really, really freaking good possession receiver. Um, but they don't really have any – they don't have the running back. They have more depth at receiver that is good than they do at running back. And when you have DTR playing the way that he is, you have to play that way. So, But when you flip to Oregon where they have all the running back depth in the world, you got Bucky Irving and then behind him you just throw wave after wave <laughs> after wave. I mean – that seems like the way that they would want to play this game. And that's the, that's the reason that's the reason, or that's the thing that really brought to mind the whole coin flip thing in terms of like um, UCLA gets a, maybe a stop to start the game. They take over the middle eight, they force Oregon to pass. I feel like that they, the way that they win this week, if they're going to is to kind of follow the formula of the last couple of weeks. And they have to have a couple of breaks go their way in order to be in the position to take advantage of that. Beyond that, I think that if thing if they don't get a couple of things to go in there, and you can say this for really any football game and any football team, but um, if a couple of things don't go in their favor, they'll be up against it. 
Well, well, I guess I am curious to find out how UCLA, if if that happens, you know, if UCLA is down by a couple of scores, because even that South Alabama game, like it, it was it was never really the point where like South Alabama was threatening to run away with this. It was like, ooh, can they hold on? You know, mm -hmm. um, I am curious to see what would happen if UCLA's backs against the wall, you know, because because Oregon's played a game like that. They played was well, they played two. They played yeah. Georgia, but they also played Wazoo in which through some boy, don't get me started on the weird stuff that was happening in the wazoo game um but like you know it was funny because like oregon was never like you know they put up like 630 yards of offense like wazoo couldn't like stop you know they never felt like that was a uh, you know, I, I know what the scoreboard says, you know, but like I'm telling you from from watching and then going back and charting that game, like Oregon was never really in a, um, you know, they, 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 they had to like nut up to win that game. But like they they did it, you know, like it wasn't like, oh, my God, I think we're playing a better team, like we're falling apart, you know, kind of deal. It was like we need to execute our game plan and come back and win this game. And like that's it doesn't really feel like UCLA has been in a game like that yet, or do you disagree? What do you think? No, no, they, they absolutely uh, against an opponent that would, uh, that I would go in um, kind of thinking that it is a 50, 50 kind of a game. The Washington and Utah games did not put up that kind of a result, uh, did not go that way. So um, yeah, for UCLA, I, I actually, again, <laughs> I said the exact same thing on our podcast, which was, <laughs> I, I am curious about how that would go for UCLA, but not curious enough to actually want to see it. <laughs> I, I, I would I would love to see the well, script that we've seen in the last two, two games. Um, maybe one day my cat is my my curiosity will be satisfied, but I don't want it to be this weekend. Well, I guess <laughs> the reason that I bring it up is not so much like who's going to win this particular football game is because I, I'm curious about what the legacy of Chip Kelly is in the, the wider football world. And like, you know, what we saw for four years of Chip Kelly teams was teams, you know, falling apart you know, the, 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 on first challenge, you know what I mean? And like, and I do think that comes back to like, I, I'm not, I, I've never really been convinced of Chip Kelly as the, you know, the rah, rah football coach who rallies a team, you know, like it doesn't really like strike me as something that's in his wheelhouse, but I mean, but maybe it is, you know, and maybe this is the final, you know, he's already broken a bunch of things that I thought were true about him, like his crazy giant playbook, you know, for example. Um, so like, yeah, it would be interesting to find out. Cause like, that's the, that's the thing that you need, you know, you want to be a hall of fame football coach. It, it it's, you know, it's playing well in big games when your back's against the wall. Like, and like, I would like to see if Chip Kelly can do that at UCLA. I'm, I'm not sure that we have yet. Have we? Uh, the closest, I mean, coming into the season, we had the discussion about the fact that they've only won two games against teams that finished the season with winning records. And both of those mm -hmm. teams finished with seven wins only. So this is going to be the first season where we come, we get to the end of a season. We can point to multiple teams, not just that were had winning records, but won more than seven games as well. Utah should, um, you would think, and South Alabama should at the absolute minimum. Washington, I, I, I would have put them in that I, boat, but then after that, I, I like the way that no. I like the way that you're phrasing this. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, there have been a couple, of, like you mentioned, a couple of trends that have been broken, but at the same time, I don't believe that there has been. I, I think, it, well, actually, it goes without saying, this is the biggest game of the Chip Kelly era at UCLA. It, it, like, it, there's not, there's not even a close second. 
Well, um, it's remarkable because, yeah. you know, they, they're coming off a year in which they trounced USC, mm -hmm. right? And you would think that would be the banner. But, like, USC didn't even give him the courtesy of presenting a good opponent to them in that year, you know? Like, to the point where like, it's sort of like that game's an afterthought. Like, who's even – I don't know. Maybe you're eating out every day on the the the, the memory of, of trouncing that team. Um, Not at all. I'm fighting people on Twitter who are trying to put that up as some sort of crowning achievement. I'm like, <laughs> it's 4-8 and eight USC coached by Dante Williams. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I, it's great that it happened. I'll have the screenshots of the scoreboard for the rest of my life and crying USC fan on the Fox broadcast and the DTR signature, the hurdle, all that wonderful stuff. I'll have all of that to if I want to troll somebody online. Um, I don't usually want to, but you know, you, you never know. <laughs> but um, but was that something where you're like, okay, that is a legacy achievement? No, it's not. That that is not a legacy win by any stretch of the imagination, except for the fact that the opponent across the field happened to be wearing a jersey that looked like USC's. But is that is that a is that a USC team worth its salt, worth that name? No, it's not. So um, this year might be. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a better offense than last year. That's for sure. The defense might be the exact same, but or a little bit better. But uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But no, I don't think there was a chance that the LSU game could have been last year if LSU turned out to be anything. Yeah, and then they didn't. You know. No. So I mean, that's just sort of yeah. the remarkable thing about that. Yeah. You know, like in four years of Chip Kelly, I can't think of like a big game that they were in that like with an opponent that at, at that point in that you know for you know not historically speaking but like at that point when they played them that was like a, a serious opponent that ucla you know had their backs up against the wall and they pulled out with the win like I, I i literally can't think of a single one i can only think of one actually that crazy washington state game that night game if you oh god that, 67 66 or whatever it ended but i mean maybe you should say it. something if like yeah. if what is wazoo really a pure program of ucla well they were ranked in the teens at that time but yeah. no it's not but but no, that's the reason why I brought it up is because because they had that number next to their name and then they ended up finishing the season like five and seven or seven and five. I forget what it was. Well, but, dear Lord, yeah. I hope this game is nothing like that game. <laughs> that's all I got to say. Um, I, I would need a defibrillator on hand. Yeah, so. <laughs> all right, y'all. Um, This has been a wonderful interview. And, and as we've covered a couple of times here, if you like this podcast, you're going to like the B-Team <laughs> exactly. podcast. Go over there at UCLA B-Team, uh, the B-Team podcast. Find them anywhere you can find a podcast. Give them five stars. Give them a, a review over on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify and such. And follow our guests, Michael Hanna, at Michael M. Hanna, H-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I I'm excited for this one. I'm so excited I'm going to be uh, uh, one of those idiots holding a sign while it's raining on game day. So I I'm stoked to be there. What can I say? Have you talked to your boy Carlos about his feelings about game day? Dear Lord, no, but I'm going to have breakfast with him, so I'll, I'll talk to him all about that. I'm sure wait, it's some spicy take, yeah. Wait, wait, is he going to be in Eugene? He didn't tell He's going to be in Eugene. That is right. What in the world? Oh, okay. There, there's a text message I need to send once we're off the line. Oh, here, there you go. Yeah. But, we're, uh, we're no, I, didn't, I did not know that, but uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, he... he, he basically he's a he's a buzzkill on so many levels but in particular when it comes to game day you're getting up at 5 a.m you're gonna go out stand, stand outside hold a sign and make noise when they put up a make noise sign like like he's that type about game day but well you anyway, know i'm a when, i'm a pac-12 fan he's a fan of the UC, of ucla so these are completely different things here so I, i'm just excited for them to be on the west coast you know wait, 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 wait 
I'm in a group chat with him where he is the one who capes up for the Pac-12, and we all give him Big Ten crap, actually. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny. That, that's a bit of a flip uh, as far as the kind of pantomime role he plays in that specific group chat. But regardless, um, no, I'm very much looking forward to this game. I really enjoyed the chat, and we we get into we get into the nerdy stuff that I just love here. So um, this was a lot of fun and it's going to be a very, very interesting battle between two teams who have a lot going for them, but are not without their weaknesses. And that means that you have uncertainty coming in. There's likely drama that we're heading for and we'll see how it goes. Absolutely. And then uh, once again, Hitler thanks for joining us. Go over to addicted to quack at Hitler day one on Twitter. H Y T H L O D A Y. The number one, uh, I'll be, I'm excited for this one, y'all. <laughs> it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you, Michael. My, my absolute pleasure. Um, Hifflede, I always love talking to you. Adam, I always love coming on and talking to you guys. And, uh, yeah, um, we're too fortunate now with what I think were really good podcasts. And uh, uh, hopefully it's a good game. Um, I, I, actually, let me rephrase that. I hope it's a UCLA blowout. It's probably going to be a good game. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Go Ducks and go Bruins. See you all next week.